What up, everybody? Oh, okay, okay. We're going to try one more time. It's a three-day weekend. Earlier, I asked the, we asked the leaders how they were doing, and I got a lot of, lot of like, eh, and okay, and it was fine. And so I need a, I need a little pick-me-up. I had a crazy week as well. So I'm going to say, what up, Oasis? All right, better, better. We are in a brand new series called the Book of Habakkuk. And yes, I said that. I think right. If you say it Habakkuk or whatever you want to say, you, you do you, right? Uh, it, it, to me, it will be the book of Habakkuk through this series. And I understand that when you maybe saw the promos on socials, even now as you sit in the seat, you're wondering, what is Habakkuk? First correction, Habakkuk is a who? It's good to know. Habakkuk is the author of a book in the Bible. Yet I often tell he's one of those forgotten authors. His book is one that is very short in length, yet deep in truth. You can find it in the Old Testament of your Bible. And as you flip through it, you're going to notice a lot of other names alongside Habakkuk's. That's because he finds himself, his book, it's nestled in the heart of what is the section we call the Minor Prophets. There's other people next to him like Amos or Haggai, Zephaniah, or maybe... Any Jonah fans out there? No. Okay. VeggieTales, I thought maybe we'd get there. We'll get there another time. But, but there's these minor prophets who have short books, but deep, deep wisdom. They might have small roles to play, but they bring transformative truth. And Habakkuk is one of those books. He, he, he has these questions he'll ask in just three chapters that will make us wrestle with who God is. It'll make us wrestle with who we are. It'll help us to try to figure out how do we live a righteous life in the midst of a broken world. And to start with all that, I got to take you back to when I was in high school. I was a junior taking pre-calc, which slight flex, but that's okay. I was taking pre-calc and the the teacher at the time, I think her name was Miss, we'll call her Miss Dykstra. I don't know. I don't remember her name, but she was a great teacher. I'll I'll promise you that. And she put up on the board a a number line that looked like this, okay? Ignore the people at the bottom. We're going to get to that. Up at the top, she put up a timeline like this, and she put at one end, she put infinity, okay? And at the other end, she put negative infinity. And in the middle, she put a zero. And in pre-calc, I don't know why someone in the math department is going to come up to me later and I tell me I did this wrong, but she put this up there, and she was explaining to us the concept of infinity, And she was explaining to us how infinity is different than any other numbers. It's more of like a category or something like that. And so she put up other numbers on the timeline, something like five, or she'd throw up another huge number like 5,000. And even though she put two different numbers on this timeline, she made us start to, to ask questions about the distance from those numbers to infinity. And little did I know, I can get, I've grown a lot, but I can get a little cocky sometimes. So my hand shot up and I was like, well, clearly, clearly 5,000 is closer to infinity than five. And because I was a little cocky and in high school, it was good to put me down every once in a while. She clowned me in front of the whole class and she told me, no, 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 no. That's totally wrong, Brennan. Actually, five and 5,000 are the the same distance to infinity. And we began to have this debate and dialogue because I told you sometimes I got a little pride. And so I was arguing with this teacher whose profession was to teach me math. And I was a junior in high school and I I stood up in front of the class and I began to draw her on her timeline, how this point is closer to, or this point is closer to infinity than this point. 
And I began to explain her. And I started to, to recruit people to my side. Any of you do this in debates? When my wife and I get in debates at home, I get on Snapchat, I start sending it to all my friends, but I only send it to the people who will support me, of course. And I start getting all these people involved and some people are like, yeah, yeah, I think Brennan's right. And Ms. Dykstra is like trying her, her best to reel the class back in because I have some leadership potential and so I'm, I'm, I'm pulling people with me and I have whole, almost the whole class convinced of this. And so she goes and she gets another math teacher and she brings this other math teacher in, he's the calculus teacher. And I'm sweating in my boots now because I was able to fake it with the pre-calc teacher, but when the calc guy stepped in the room, I was, I was toast. And he told me, he said, well, part of the problem is infinity can't even exist on a timeline. It's kind of like the concept of eternity, right? It doesn't exist chronologically. Infinity is an abstract idea. And so it can't, no matter how far you walk along the number line, it will never actually be nearer. And I said, okay, I concede. I got it, I got it. And the reason I tell you this whole story is because the wrestling, the dialogue, the debate in which I engaged with my teacher is similar to what we'll step into when Habakkuk is talking to God. Because God is the creator of all the universe. He's got the answers. And Habakkuk is this prophet, this man who's supposed to speak on behalf of God. He's supposed to lead the people in God's truth. Yet there is this friction between what Habakkuk knows and what he's experiencing. It was something like what was happening on the board. She was teaching me this idea, but that idea did not line up with the way that I was seeing the world. And because she was a good teacher and she let me have a little bit of creative freedom, she let me express that. And I stood up in front of the class and eventually she regretted it, but she let me bring the debate. She let me ask tough questions. She let me have doubts. She let me really wrestle with it. She let me invite other people with me on my journey of trying to discover. And that's what we're gonna see in the faith of Habakkuk. That yes, does he have questions? Absolutely. Does he disagree with God in some spaces? For sure. But yet he has the faith to step up to the throne room of God and ask the tough questions. He actually will step into the presence of God in prayer and he will bring his complaints. He's not afraid. It's a really beautiful thing and it's what we're gonna look at tonight. We'll see Habakkuk do this and we're actually gonna start in Habakkuk chapter one. So if you'll flip there, uh, we'll start chapter one, verse one, but as you get there, I'm gonna pray. Father, I thank you for your word tonight. I thank you that your spirit is here alive and active. I pray that you would lead us by your spirit into your word that we might see truth. And we pray that in Jesus name, amen. Habakkuk chapter one starts in verse one when it says the prophecy that Habakkuk the prophet received. Now there are certain sections of scripture that often feel like throwaway stuff, but as you're leafing through the entire Old Testament, this one verse is usually not someplace that you're gonna camp out, but I spent most of my week here. Because for us, when we flip open to the book of Habakkuk, there is a title at the top, top called Habakkuk. Yet that was added after the fact, and we put that title in there, but when Habakkuk wrote it, he gave it its own title, and you just read it in chapter one, verse one. This is what he said his whole letter would be about. The whole book he was writing down places its foundation in those seven words we just read, and it, and it goes like this, I'm gonna read it to you again. It says, the prophecy that Habakkuk the prophet received. And now I wanna read it to you in the original Hebrew. It says, Masa Aser Habakkuk Nabi Haza. And the, the reason I take time to very poorly translate and read you Hebrew is because if we can understand what these seven words actually truly mean, 
if we can get to the depth of what Habakkuk is writing about in these first words, it will unlock the whole rest of this series for us. And so I'm gonna start with these seven and I'm actually gonna work backwards because the first word I want us to focus in on is the word prophet or the Hebrew word nabi. If you're reading from an NIV Bible, New English or New International Version, you'll see that that word nabi is translated as prophet. However, nabi can also be translated as the word spokesman or spokesperson. And the reason this distinction is important for us tonight is because in normal life, I don't know about you, I don't encounter many prophets. If your YouTube searches are filled with prophets, talk to me. But most of the time, we don't, we don't encounter many prophets, but we do encounter spokespeople. For example, I'm going to have us play a game to understand this. So when I put a picture up on the screen, I need you with full confidence to tell me who that is. Can we do this? Oh, that was so lame. I'm believing in you guys. Can you put up that first picture for me? Who's that? Michael Jordan, okay? It gets a little bit harder. Next one. Wait, 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 wait. Don't put up the likes on yet. This one is hard, okay? I am a little bit older than you guys, but I am believing in you. Please, someone out there, know who this is. Third picture, Nate. All right, I cheated. I gave you the name because I didn't know if you would know. But each of these people has someone in common. And maybe, maybe you know it. They have something in common. And the first one is Michael Jordan. He is the spokesperson for Nike, right? One of the most famous athletes in the world. He makes over a billion dollars a year helping Nike, or he has in his career made over a billion dollars helping Nike sell shoes and clothes. The next person, Jake, he is from State Farm. Jake from State Farm. It's, it's linked into his name. He's a spokesperson. And the last one, Sarah McLaughlin, I don't know if you can see at the bottom, but she is an ASPCA supporter. And I don't know if we grew up in a different era, but when these commercials came on TV, does anybody remember those? Because you'd be sitting there watching your cartoons and all of a sudden the sad music starts to play and you're having a delightful Saturday, but Sarah McLaughlin's there to ruin it, to tell you that puppies everywhere are dying. And all of a sudden, she's a spokesperson on behalf of this organization trying to get you to do something. We understand spokespeople. They communicate information on behalf of another. We understand this idea, but we often don't understand what it means to be a prophet. So in a similar way, Habakkuk, the author of this book, is communicating something on behalf of another. And that other person is God. He's a nabi, a spokesman, a prophet. And part of his job is the second word I want us to focus on, is Habakkuk serves in the temple as a musician. And when he's a prophet musician there, his job is to receive. And the Hebrew word there is haza. And haza most directly translates to the word actually to see. And so what we will read in the next three weeks is actually a vision that Habakkuk saw. He was sitting in the temple and he saw this encounter he had with God. They had this actual dialogue. He, he envisioned it and then he wrote it down for us. This is what Habakkuk did as a prophet. It was part of his job. And finally, the last word I want us to zoom in on is prophecy. It's way at the beginning in the Hebrew word there is masa. Now a simple and generic definition for prophecy is just truth revealed by God. If I was gonna give a prophetic word to someone who didn't know Jesus, it could be as simple as God loves you. Because this is truth that God has revealed to me that I get to give to someone else who doesn't know it. That could be a prophetic word. Yet there also is, is, is some 
complications to the way that prophecy can be used. We will talk about that a different day. But a simple idea is prophecy is truth revealed. And so Habakkuk, he's, he's revealing truth to us as the readers, yet there is this nuance in the word masa in the Hebrew. It's not just translated as truth revealed or prophecy, but it has this undertone in it that means burden. That the message Habakkuk is communicating to us in three chapters, it's gonna be heavy. It's not gonna be easy for all of us to hear. It was not easy for him to communicate on behalf of God. For me to tell someone that Jesus loves them, that can be pretty easy. For you to go into your classrooms or your workplaces and communicate that God cares for people, that's fairly easy. What Habakkuk is about to do is he's gonna deliver a truth that's weighty. It's heavy. It will be hard for some of us to hear it's a burden, yet it is true. It's masa, it's prophecy. So if I was summarizing all of that, I would tell you that Habakkuk is a spokesperson on behalf of God who sees and then delivers a difficult message of truth. And the message he's communicating is this, it's, it's in verse two. It says, how long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you violence, but you don't save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law, it's paralyzed. Justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. This begins a, a pattern in Habakkuk, Habakkuk's letter, one where he brings a complaint to God and God actually responds. Yet when God responds to Habakkuk's first complaint, he doesn't like the answer. And so he brings a second complaint. And in his second complaint, guess what? God responds. This is the beauty of what we're trying to explore in this book. And eventually Habakkuk gets to this place where he has peace and he sings God's praises. Yet his first complaint, it comes from this time in history that he was living. Habakkuk was a prophet in the temple in the nation of Judah. And Judah was having crazy problems domestically. Their king, King Jehoiakim, was a terrible person. And what he did is he actually sold off most of his rights to lead the nation to Pharaoh in Egypt. And so Pharaoh Necho, he had this power over the people of Judah where he could come in and do whatever he wanted to the people or to the land. I'm telling you, King Jehoiakim was a bad dude. But this was all just happening domestically. Internationally, there was a huge issue as well. There was this nation called Assyria, which just was the worst nation up to date in human history. They would slaughter and oppress any people group they came across. They were just ruling over the entire known world at the time. And, and the Israelites and the Judah people, they, would, they, they feared the Assyrians. Yet in the background of the international news, there was this rumbling of a new nation, a nation of people group called the, the Chaldeans or the Babylonians. These people who were actually supposed to be worse than the Assyrians. And so Habakkuk, he, he's seeing all of this play out. As a spokesperson of God, there is both unrest domestically and oppression happening internationally. And he says in verse three, he says, destruction and violence, they're everywhere. Strife and conflict. 
the law, what God has put in place to govern the people, it's not working. Justice isn't happening. The bad people hurt the good people and there's not a lick of justice to be seen. And as Habakkuk sees all of that, he pleads with God. How long? How long, God, will you let this keep happening? He's forced to just sit there and watch the people he loves be oppressed and hurt and burdened and struggle. And he cries out for help, God, how long? Yet even in his cries as a spokesperson of God, it seems God is distant and absent. He's seeing this happen, yet God's not doing anything. And so Habakkuk, he keeps pleading, where are you, God? Don't you care, God? I need you, God. We need you, God. Yet God doesn't respond. Not right away. And there's something beautiful about that. Because Habakkuk's not afraid to question God. Do you see that? Habakkuk's theology, what he knows to be true about God, is not meeting his lived experience. He, he, he knows the Old Testament front and back. There is a promise in Exodus 22 where God says, I will hear the cries of my people. Yet Habakkuk daily as a profession is in the temple crying out on behalf of the people and God is nowhere. God, is that promise true? He knows in his theology that God is good and kind and loving, but his experience is hardship and struggle and pain. He knows that God is powerful and just and sovereign and in control and able. Yet there are all these people from King Jehoiakim to Pharaoh to Assyria who feel like they have the control and God's not doing anything about it. And it doesn't feel like he's sovereign. And it feels like they get to do whatever they want to God's people. Do you see what's happening here? <clears throat> there is this intellectual idea that Habakkuk knows. Yet this is, there is this lived experience that he is feeling. And the two aren't connecting. And he brings all of that pain to God. He takes it and he drops it in the throne room of God. He says, God, here it is. It's at your feet. I am struggling. <clears throat> your people are struggling. It's at your feet. What are you going to do about this? And to that, there's something beautiful, something honest, something I pray we would learn because that same promise of God hearing the cries of his people, it translates over to the New Testament when Paul in Ephesians 3 writes, in him and through faith in him, that's Jesus, we may approach the throne with freedom and confidence. Do you know the example of Habakkuk is a promise for you? That the God of all creation has said to you, you can approach me with freedom and confidence. Is that how you navigate your prayer life? That when, when things are good, yeah, freedom, confidence, that's good. But when things are bad, do you still approach the throne with freedom and confidence? Where are you at tonight? What are you wrestling with? What's the question that you have of God, but you're afraid to ask it? You're afraid to ask it because you don't want to shatter the fragile faith you feel like you've built. You're afraid to ask the question because you don't want to push away your loving God. 
Maybe you're afraid to ask the question because you've built up this persona that you're a perfect Christian, but deep down you got some serious doubts about the way that you show up in this place and you don't want everybody else to see that. Where are you at? You've got wrestlings, doubts, questions, hardship, struggle, pain. Me too. Yet I pray we would have faith like Habakkuk to show up and with freedom and confidence bring that into the presence of God. And when he does, God responds. Essentially, Habakkuk asks this, this poignant question in the midst of the tension, right? He's got his theology and his experience, and he asks this question in the middle. He says, God, why do you tolerate wrongdoing? That word tolerate in the Hebrew, it actually talks about bystander. God, why do you just stand by when evil goes on and on and on and on? Bad stuff keeps happening and God, you feel distant. Why do you tolerate it? Why do you allow evil to persist? Why does it get to continue? Why is this our reality? And that question, I feel it's one when we're confident enough, there's something in us that relates to that question. To me, it's a, it's a, it's a universal question of humanity that why, why does evil get to persist? And God answers that, but he answers it in a way that might shock you as much as it did Habakkuk. It's in verse five, God says, look at the nation and watch, be utterly amazed for I'm gonna do something in your days that you would not believe even if I told you. I'm raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to sweep, seize dwellings. Oh, 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 Lord, come on. To seize dwellings that are not their own. I need you to understand the craziness of this. I'm gonna paraphrase a bit. So Brennan translation, take it with a grain of salt. It goes like this. Habakkuk, he's like, yo, God, we got some issues. And God, I know. Habakkuk's like, what are you gonna do about it? And God's like, I got you. But what I'm gonna do, you're not gonna believe it. And Habakkuk, you can, I can feel him, right? He, he leans forward in his chair with God. Oh man, it's gonna be good, right? God, we got issues, you got solutions. We're gonna, what is it? God says, I'm bringing the Babylonians. The what? The Babylonians? No, 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 no. God, I don't know if you know, but like the Babylonians, they're messed up. They got, they got more problems than the Assyrians. We already have the Assyrians. What, what are you doing with the Babylonians? Okay, he doesn't say it quite like that, but he does say it like this. In verse seven, he says, they are a feared and dreaded people. They are a law to themselves and they promote their own honor. Their horses are swifter than leopards, fiercer than wolves at dusk. Their cavalry gallops headlong. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swooping to devour. They all come intent on violence. Their hordes advance like a, a desert and gather prisoners like sand. They mock kings and scoff at rulers. They laugh at all fortified cities and by building earthen ramps, they capture them. Then they sweep past like the wind and they go on. Guilty people whose own strength is their God. Summing that up for you, the Babylonians are one of the worst nations in all of human history. Past, present, and by God's grace future, these people are downright evil. They stack it up with the worst of them. 
Yet this is who God has chosen to bring justice. Habakkuk cries out for deliverance and God raises up the Babylonians. There is this unbelievable just disconnect in Habakkuk. Anyone else frustrated by that? See that in your own life play out? You've cried out to God and rather than bringing what you think is salvation, he's brought what seems like more problems. You cried out to God, you've asked God, please, I need you, please show up in these moments. Yet sometimes there feels like there's more consequences than solutions. Habakkuk, he wrestles with this. I told you he, he complains yet again, but we'll leave that for next week. Tonight, I want us to spend the rest of our time unpacking the why question. Why would God raise up an evil people to bring good? There's two questions we've really asked tonight. The first one is why does God tolerate evil? Why is it allowed to persist? That's a question I haven't answered for you yet, but I will. And the second question is why does he use evil to accomplish good? To understand the first, we, we must understand evil from God's perspective, from his point of view, because it's different than the way that we navigate evil. I want, uh, Nate, will you put up that next dilemma up there for me? When it comes to our sense of morality as people, there's some gray. There's some things that are blatantly right and there's some things that are blatantly wrong, but yet there is some gray. And so I found this, which is used at different ethics courses to kind of flush out what is a moral dilemma. I'll read it for you if you can't see it. It says, you and a group of people are stranded in a lifeboat and in the middle of the ocean. There is only enough food or water for half of the people to survive until rescue arrives. Do you sacrifice the weaker members of the group to ensure the survival of the stronger ones? Or do you try to distribute the resources evenly and risk everyone dying? They put this question up at ethics groups and they have debates on it for months at a time. Tonight, I just want you to, in your own seat, in your own heart, answer this question. It's the plot of like a million movies and TV shows. But if this is you, you're stranded out in the middle of the ocean with this group of people. People are gonna die. At least that's what it appears. What do you do? And the reason I put this up there is because you start, at least I hope you start to feel the wrestling and the tension. That some of you, you passionately believe that you could never take a life. And if, 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 I, if you can't take a life, it's either everybody's making it or nobody's making it. And some of you, you're older on the other side. It's like, man, Darwin taught us, right? <laughs> Survival of the fittest. I'm stronger than you. <laughs> I mean, like, feels like it's just like simple to some of us out there. And then the other people are over there with our empathetic hearts and we're like, yeah, but they didn't get, they didn't mean to be weak. It's like, there's this, there's this dynamic, this dilemma, this wrestling in us as we try to figure out that which is right or wrong. And this is a really tangible example, but I wanna bring you to something that's more in our real life. There are things that we go through that are, are hard to navigate. Like, like, let's talk about one that's lying. Anybody ever felt the tension of the moral dilemma of lying? You, you know a piece of information, but if you tell the piece of information to a, that person who it affects, it might hurt them. Or you know a piece of information, but you don't feel like revealing that information is best for that person or that scenario. You ever felt that tension to lie? See, it's a little gray. Or there's another one we could talk about, which is drinking. There's an evidently black and white text or, or pieces of text that tell us drunkenness is wrong. But when we get to drinking alcohol, there's some gray there. 
right? You have to ask yourself questions like, can I handle this? How much is too much for me? What does it do to my witness, to my community, if I drink? If I drink with this group of people, but I know that person struggles with drunkenness, like, is that okay? If I drink in this, you know, you can see some of the gray. And so you start to see that and it's like, man, it's a little bit harder. There's other things that I'll put up here, like comparison, stealing, cheating. Any college students out there? Shout out. Laziness, greed, lack of faith. God's asked you to do something, but man, it's hard. You're gonna show up, lack of love. Or just, which one am I missing here? Mm, I'm stuck, someone give me a sin. Uh, Pride, love it, great answer. So in there, okay, and I also didn't explain, these are people. I got my degree in communication, not art. (laughs) So these are people. And so you can see there's all these things which we wrestle with that are gray. You could justify a lot of this in different different areas, right? Pride is just confidence, but tipped a little bit too far, it's, it's pride, right? But then there's things as a society and not even just as a society, as a world we've agreed are just non negotiable. You got things like murder, rape, abuse, violence, Right, stuff where it's like, man, let's not kid about that. These things though, man, those really hurt people. And so we come to God like Habakkuk does and we say, God, why do you tolerate evil? And we put this, we put this expectation of God to see evil the way we see evil. And so we say, God, get rid of evil. And we draw a line just about right here. God, I need you to get rid of the murderers and the rapists, the people who abuse and cause violence but you can, you can leave the people who cheat, the people who steal, the people who compare, the people who drink, the people who lie. Like, they're, they're cool, but like, take care of evil, God. And we bring this perspective and we lay it on God. Yet what if God has a different perspective? What if God doesn't see evil and interact with evil the way that we do? And so when we cry out to God and say, God, would you please eradicate, take away evil? What if it's different? Because Matthew 5, 48 tells us, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. God is holy, without blame, without blemish, perfect. And he has set the line for us as people to be perfect. And I don't know about you, but I'm not perfect. And Romans 3 will tell us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so you might not be a murderer, but chances are you have done something on that board. And it means we have fallen short of what God has called us to be. And so we pray and we ask God, would you eradicate evil? Would you make it go away? Would you cause it to disappear? But what if God's line is different than ours? Nobel Prize winning author Alexander Solzhenitsyn writes, the line that separates good and evil, it actually passes right through the middle of every human heart. And you can see when we call out to God and ask him to eradicate evil, part of what he sees is an evil that cuts all of us. 
And as much as you want God to take care of some evil, he's either taking care of all evil or no evil yet. And this is the tension that Habakkuk is wrestling with. God, why does evil persist? Yet the nation of Judah is evil. He's saying, get rid of the Assyrians, get rid of King Jehoiakim, get rid of the, the Pharaoh Nacho, but please, please leave my people. And God's, but you're evil too. Yet the beauty of living on this side of the cross is our reality is a little bit different. No matter if you're a murderer or a rapist or you compare or you lack love or you struggle with pride or your greed, if you come to Jesus, the one who died for your sin and you repent and say, God, I need your forgiveness. If you repent and you intend to lead a life that is new in Jesus, God does not see evil in you anymore. Instead, what God sees is he sees the blood of his son. He sees you completely covered forever in what Jesus did for you. This is the beauty of the gospel. And in the meantime, God will use evil people, evil nations, evil actions to bring about good. Evil people like us who are redeemed by Jesus, he'll bring good. Evil people like the Babylonians, who most of them will never come to know Jesus, he can still use that for his good. God in his love can bring deliverance through discipline. Last story. When I was in high school again, I was a senior and my brother was a sophomore and uh, he struggled with some really, really like blatant, deep, hard, dark sins. Stuff that was like really, really tough. And for sake of privacy, I won't go into all of it. But when I was a senior and he was a sophomore, I remember my parents found out about some of this. And when they found out, they cracked down hard in discipline. I'm talking like they canceled his social life. It wasn't he was grounded for a week. They were like, you will no longer see your friends. They took his phone and they checked it every single day. They took away his car. And so my mom, every single morning, drove him and dropped him off at the front of the school as a sophomore. And every single afternoon at three o'clock, she sat outside right front car and she started her watch and she gave him 10 minutes. And if he wasn't in the seat next to her in 10 minutes, she was coming in and I watched her do it once. When everybody else was pulling up to practice, he got dropped off by his mom. They took away his bedroom. They took his mattress and they put it on the floor of their room next to their bed. He did not go a single hour of any day for at least a month without adult supervision. And as a senior, I was like, yo, y'all gotta chill. I was like, this is crazy. And yet last, yesterday, I got to officiate my brother's wedding. And as I stood in front of him and his bride and I got to teach them and encourage them in the faith, I could have confidence that they're pursuing Jesus now, not completely perfect, but healed of so much of that burden. And so last week I called my brother and I said, hey, I wanna tell this story, is that okay with you? And I'll read you what he exactly said. He said, of course, because during that time it was really hard, but looking back on it, I'm so grateful. My relationships and my life are better because of how my parents disciplined me. And yet we hear that reality, but I can promise you when he was sleeping on the floor next to my parents' bed, he did not like the consequences. 
or when he was getting dropped off at school every day, he, 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 didn't, he wasn't overflowing with gratitude. Yet there's something about deliverance through discipline, something about finding healing through consequences that sometimes, sometimes God lets us feel the consequences of our behavior to lead us into something better. And that's what the Israelites are experiencing. The people of Judah have been living in sin. They themselves are evil, evil, needing a change of life. And so God lets them feel their consequences. And sometimes for us, this looks like you're in a relationship you shouldn't be in, whether it's romantic or with a friend, and you feel this thing of betrayal. And you're wrestling with God, why did I have to feel this hurt? But for you to learn the lesson you needed to, you had to get hurt. Or you cheated on that assignment and you just kept cheating because it was so easy that you could just Google it. But all of a sudden you got caught and you got a zero and now your grade is tanked, but you needed to feel the consequences of cheating for you to live in righteousness. Some of us, we gotta touch the hot stove to learn that it's hot. You need to deal with the consequences to learn what is a better way of life. The one that hit me this last week is sometimes I feel like God takes away the peace that I'm experiencing so that I might be drawn back to the source of peace, which is him. Sometimes he takes away. Sometimes he allows things in our lives so that we might see him more clearly. Nobody likes consequences. Nobody likes discipline. I told you the truth Habakkuk was delivering tonight was heavy. It was hard. There's a weight and a burden to it, yet it is true. There's beauty in the wrestling. There's freedom in God's discipline. Yet even still, I know because I'm the one who preached it and I feel it too, that as you finish this sermon tonight, some of us are walking out of here just still trying to, not feeling really at peace with it. And if that's you, that's okay. Because Habakkuk, he actually will start our next section with these words. He says, God, you're from eternity, aren't you? Holy God, we aren't going to die, are we? God, you chose the Babylonians for your judgment work. Rock solid God, you gave them the job of discipline. You can't be serious. How could you condone evil? Why don't you do something about this? Why are you still silent? This outrage, evil men swallow up the righteous and you just stand around and watch. After everything I taught you tonight, these are the emotions Habakkuk is still feeling. And so as you wrestle with God's consequences and his discipline, as you wrestle with the times where he feels distant, as you bring your big questions to him and you lay them at the feet of the, of the cross, it's okay if there's not instant peace. Keep wrestling, keep going, because it takes Habakkuk about three chapters to get there. Pray with me.